This is Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, this is Bob Johnston, and you're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio, 89.5 FM and 92.5 FM in good old McLean County in Bloomington Normal, 88.3 in Pontiac, 97.1 in Lincoln, 89.1 in DeKalb Sycamore. We're going to have a great show for you today. I'm here with my wife, Lynn, and uh, we are going to finish up on the Ukrainian situation that we were talking about last week and look at it maybe from a little more of a practical matter. Last week, we looked at the fact that uh, Putin and uh, a guru that gives him a lot of advice, who is a philosopher and theologian, looks at it from an Orthodox Christian point of view and sees it as uh, traditionalism against modernism and uh, sees it as a a stand against the woke culture that uh, he sees uh, in the modern Western world. And uh, so Catholicism plays uh, a big role in this situation. The uh, Orthodox at one time was uh, in communion with the Catholic Church, of course, and still were very, very close in many, many ways and uh, have uh, the same sacraments and so on. And we still recognize a lot of the Orthodox uh, theology and their ability to uh, administer the sacraments and along that line. And so it was important for us to look at it from that point of view. We're going to finish up and look at it again from a practical point of view as it has an effect uh, on our country and an effect on the world. And uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Remember, we are brought to you by you, and uh, we depend on your donations uh, to bring all of the radio shows that we have to you as part of EWTN, and uh, Catholic Spirit Radio depends solely on all of the goodwill of its listeners, so anything you can do to help, we would appreciate very, very much. And uh, any donation you would like to make, large or small, would be appreciated. If you want to make a donation or learn more about us, you can go to our website, and that's catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's catholicspiritradio.com. You can also call us at 309-807-2427. Again, that's 309-807-2427 if you want to give us a call. The best thing to do, of course, is go to our website, catholicspiritradio.com. It will tell you a lot about us and give a lot of information there. And so we will, again, I'm going to do an article here from uh, the National Review magazine. But before we start, uh, I think my wife has something to mention, and that does concern information that uh, you can find on our website. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Lynn. Right. Check the website, catholicspiritradio.com, and go on there and also listen. As you're listening, you're going to hear more and more about our trip, the sponsored trip of uh, to Ohio, to Mother Angelica's uh, hometown, and to visit there, and then St. Mary of the Woods on the way back or two in the, anyway it's an overnight trip it'll be a great trip uh ohio is a very pretty state and indiana is too very peaceful very nice 
There's some sites there in Indiana where uh, there's a shrine to one of our American saints, and there's a shrine to uh, Our Lady of America. I don't know if that's for sure yet going there, but, oh, it's going to be a great trip. You'll enjoy it very much. Keep an ear out for those those things. Yeah, we'll be having a little bit of information on that coming up here in the future. We're going to do some interviews with some people in, in, uh, at the Shrine or in those areas. And uh, you'll see some of that information on our website. And uh, we'll be uh, coming up here with those interviews not too long in the future. So be watching and listening for those as well. Anything else, Lynn? No. Okay, so... At any rate, I'm going to read a little bit uh, from the National Review. It's the June uh, 27th uh, issue, and uh, it's titled, In Search of an Endgame, Realism, Idealism, and the War in Ukraine. It's by Mario uh, Loyola, and uh, Mario Loyola is a policy advisor, or was a foreign policy advisor in the U.S. Senate and also in the Pentagon. He's a professor at Florida International University and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute of George Mason University as well. Knows quite a bit about foreign policy, uh, past and present, and uh, looks at uh, what's going on in Ukraine from a practical point of view. So we will look at that. Uh, actually, we're sort of having a proxy war with Russia, you know, through Ukraine. And I talked about the fact that uh, Putin uh, sees this as a cultural clash and a religious clash, as well as a historical clash uh, over historical territory concerning Russia and over Russian pride and uh, what he feels as Russian territory and is uh, attached to some of the things he wants to do more than people think. And he does sit on one of the biggest uh, nuclear arsenals in the world. And that is a consideration we should take, uh, you know, it's very, very seriously. And since that time, since last week that we talked about this, there were a couple of public service announcements uh, in the New York City media concerning what to do uh, and how, you know, if under a nuclear attack. And I haven't heard these things uh, since I was pretty much a kid back in the 1950s. And it makes you wonder why uh, is this being done? Uh, a lot of the news that I was watching sort of laughed it off as if it were, you know, some, some kind of an over-exaggeration. But it makes you wonder why are, is this being done? Is it something, a real consideration? Uh, are we going to use the uh, proxy war in Ukraine as some means of uh, reigniting the Cold War? Uh, is this something that's being pushed maybe by the military-industrial complex? Uh, th- that is that, uh, you know, so many people uh, in selling all kinds of military uh, weapons and so forth, uh, make a lot of money uh, pushing the idea that there's going to be some kind of a war or disaster and that that has to be something we take into consideration. So is this being used, the Ukraine war, as a means of pushing this idea of, uh, you know, stockpiling more and more arms? 
Uh, also, in the news right after that, there was this emphasis uh, a couple of times I saw in different spots in the news about the fact that Russia and China have hypersonic missiles that are advanced over ours and that we're behind in that and we need to start catching up. Again, you start thinking, you know, is this for real, uh, a real concern, or is it something being used again to, you know, push this idea of the military-industrial complex? All kinds of uh, things come to mind over this. And, uh, again, it's attached also to religion and attached to uh, uh, the the difference between modern and uh, uh, standard, you know, uh, traditional culture. Uh, so it's an important issue. We are going to finish it here today by, by going through this article uh, and looking at it from a practical point of view. But it does make you wonder. Uh, even I saw on the news where we are now sending up balloons. We used to do this back in the 19, late 1940s and throughout some of the earlier 1950s where we would send up balloons and they would watch and listen for missile launches and they would watch and listen for uh, nuclear explosions going on to see if uh, Russia or some other country was breaking the nuclear test ban treaty and that kind of thing. And now they're saying that we're doing this again to see if there are being uh, hypersonic uh, missiles being launched and that we are doing it also as an early warning system, the best early warning system we can get if uh, something like this would happen. Some of these hypersonic missiles, uh, as I understand it, can reach speeds up to about 5,000 miles per hour. Uh, that would mean they could cross the entire continent of the United States in about 30 to 35 minutes. And it wouldn't take long from eastern Russia to swing out over the uh, uh, over Alaska and down into the United States across the Bering Sea. So... These are all things that take into consideration, and so this war takes on both a practical importance, a military importance, a cultural importance, and a religious importance uh, more than most people realize. And that's why we're talking about it for so long, and that's why we're going to go ahead and see if we can finish that today. That's right, because you don't, you know, all these, like you're talking about the balloons and stuff, We've got satellites. I mean, I don't understand all all that's going on or what they're using. These balloons are just... We've got a, a satellite up there, many satellites. Don't they pick up things? You would think so, but maybe the, the uh, aerial balloons, I don't know, maybe they can pick up a launch or something much quicker than a satellite can. A satellite might not pick it up until... A hypersonic missile is up quite high in the atmosphere. I'm not sure if you're traveling at, uh, if a missile is traveling at, say, 5,000 miles per hour, it probably has to be high in the upper atmosphere before it ever reaches that speed. Because if it was lower, it would probably just burn up. I mean, mm, it's, you true, know, it's going true. too fast. So uh, I don't know. But well, uh, at least they've updated things now they tell you to lock, go in your house lock the doors close the windows <laughs> and don't leave it's but, better uh, than climbing under your desk and putting a book over your head <laughs> or i understand yeah we ought to tell some of the things 
that we were advised to do back in the 1950s in, in case of a nuclear attack, like lay down in the gutter and put a newspaper over your head to keep your <laughs> keep you from being blinded by the flash and that thing. We used to make a lot of fun of all that stuff back then, but uh, of course, when you're a kid, you can do that. Uh, but it's a pretty serious business. At any rate, we're going to get into this article in search of an end game and uh, realism, idealism, and the war in Ukraine by Mario Loyola. It says here, Henry Chris Kissinger stirred up a hornet's nest recently when he suggested that peace talks in Ukraine should seek a return to the status quo ante because that would recognize Russia's illegal seizures of territory in the years before the war. Because of that, the suggestion was widely slammed as appeasement. The context is new, but the argument, pitting idealists against realists, is one of the oldest in American foreign policy. In staring down the Soviet Union, Ronald Reagan showed that American foreign policy is at its best when it takes a pragmatic approach to achieving principal goals. But a policy of principled pragmatism can be hard to come by. In the 14 points he sought to impose in Europe after the First World War, Woodrow Wilson showed that when there is confusion about the interests at stake, an unrealistic idealism tends to shape America's posture, often with a heavy dose of moral preening and terrible, terrible results. And of course, Wilson's policy led right to World War II. And so we have to be, you know, take this into consideration. There's such a thing as an ideal situation and such a thing as settling something from a pragmatical point of view. It goes on here. It says, one example of principal pragmatism was President Nixon's brilliant handling of the Yom Kippur War of 1973 when an American airlift saved Israel from a surprise attack by Egypt and Syria. Israel, Israeli forces turned the tables and were soon encircling Egypt's third army. Suddenly, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger convinced Nixon to push for a ceasefire in place, which stopped the Israelis in their tracks and began pressuring Israel to return the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. Many Israelis felt betrayed after 15,000 dead in just a few weeks of war. But the outcome, a limited Egyptian defeat that allowed Anwar Sadat to claim some measure of success, paved the way for the Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt, ended the era of state-on-state Arab-Israeli wars, probably forever, and cemented the position of the United States as the preeminent power in the Middle East. By the time Sadat joined hands with Jimmy Carter and Menachem Begin in 1978, his war of aggression had been forgotten, <clears throat> had been forgiven, if not forgotten. He died a hero to the Jewish people. Alas, examples of Wilsonian policy uh, by platitude are more numerous and include America's mishandling of the Hungarian uprising of 1956. The otherwise pragmatic President Eisenhower was under the sway of his arch-idealist Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, a virulent anti-communist who had encouraged the people of Eastern Europe to rise up against the Soviet yoke. After unrest in Poland earlier that year, student demonstrations suddenly rocked Budapest. Radio Free Europe urged the protesters to reject compromise 
and embrace maximalist demands, all but pledging American support. In fact, Washington wasn't prepared to risk World War III to help an uprising that was almost certain to be put down by massive Soviet force, which is exactly what happened next. Seduced by the sirens of American idealism, Hungary descended deeper into the Stalinist repression. Unfortunately, American policy toward Ukraine and Russia has had a distinctly Wilsonian bent since at least the Clinton administration. U.S. wartime aid to Ukraine will soon exceed Russia's entire military budget for 2021. But the Biden administration thinks it can stay out of the war by not putting American boots on the ground and not giving Ukraine weapons it could use to carry the fight into Russia. Meanwhile, more than a few members of Congress want to give Ukraine whatever it needs to keep fighting until it liberates every inch of occupied territory. So what is America's endgame? Well, it doesn't seem to have one yet. Americans are still figuring out what's at stake in the conflict, when they're not busy railing against the evils of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Most of the world blames Putin for the current catastrophe, and many Russians doubtless share that view. He has unleashed a war of aggression and must be held accountable. But the causes and potential consequences of the conflict in Ukraine go far beyond the simple question of who's to blame for the current fighting. The collapse of the Soviet Union entailed a host of potentially explosive issues, the main ones being the withdrawal of Soviet forces from Eastern Europe simultaneously with the reunification of Germany as a NATO power. Further complicating the situation, the former Soviet republics all started declaring independence within borders that were often just artifacts of Soviet policy and not, all, and not at all the real and historical borders that existed prior to that artificial Soviet policy. So we're going to stop here and take a break, and we're going to come back and uh, finish this and see what the interests in the, in the United States are and uh, what could be possibly the solution to what this conflict uh, is causing. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. The next Catholic Spirit Radio pilgrimage is September 29th through 30th. We'll be going to Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica. We'll tour the Mother Angelica Museum and visit the Rhoda Weiss Miracle House. Rhoda had the stigmata and interceded for the curing of Mother's physical ailment. This bus trip also includes a tour of St. Mother Theodore Guerin Shrine at St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana. Check the Catholic Spirit Radio website for details. Hi, this is Cy Kellett, host of Catholic Answers Live. For me, for me, Catholic Radio is an opportunity to be a little bit of light in a world that is succumbing more and more to darkness, to share that light with people who feel the darkness inside and really want the light and warmth of Jesus Christ. Invite others into this work the Holy Spirit is already doing. Invite them to listen to Catholic Answers Live Hi, this is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. 
We're talking about the situation in Ukraine and some of the huge problems that it is causing throughout the world and some of the um, dire possibilities uh, that could be the consequences of uh, what's going on there and uh, what are our ideas of success there and what would be an end game for us and, you know, what are we trying to accomplish. And we're talking about the fact that uh, Ukraine and many other uh, independent uh states now that were part of the Soviet Union, a lot of them have borders that weren't at all their original borders. And Ukraine is a is an outstanding example of that. It has borders that are uh, not at all in keeping with uh, what his, it historically was. And those borders were expanded artificially under the Soviet Union. And of course, at that time, Russia, the Soviet Union, didn't care where the borders were and uh, who was living there because, you know, they were controlling all of it in these countries such as Ukraine were simply puppets. But it says, among the many resulting problems, the newly born Ukraine suddenly found itself in possession of sizable nuclear forces as well as the Soviet Union's vaunted Black Sea Fleet, neither of which Ukraine knew what to do with. Preferring the devil it knew to the one it didn't, the United States pressured Ukraine to transfer the nukes and the fleet back to the Russians. But there was another major problem, one that has unfortunately escaped the notice of American diplomats to this day. Ukraine had declared independence within borders that left it in possession of far too much of historic Russia. As long as Ukraine was a Russian puppet, the location of their mutual border didn't matter. But should Ukraine ever seek real independence or, even worse, NATO membership, its borders would have to be adjusted to avoid creating an existential conflict with Russia. The only question was whether the adjustment would happen by negotiation or by war. Simply put, Ukraine was born within borders that were totally incompatible with a truly independent state. For as long as Russia itself had existed, Ukraine had been a part of it. Ukraine actually predated Muscovite Russia by many centuries. But as Putin rightly points out, the administration, the, the administrative entity known today as Ukraine was created by Vladimir Lenin after Germany cleaved it from Russia in the widely condemned diktat of Brest-Livatsk in 1918. The Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine thus wound up with tens of millions of Russians, but Russian communists didn't care because the Soviet Union was a united totalitarian state. It certainly was not with Ukraine's national independence in mind that Nikita Khrushchev, himself a Ukrainian, transferred the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine, along with the Black Sea Fleet and Russia's most important naval base in the world at Sevastopol. It didn't matter to him that Crimea had never been considered part of Ukraine or that few ethnic Ukrainians had ever lived there. It was a propaganda exercise meant to give the utterly false appearance of multipolarity within the Soviet Union. There is at the heart of this conflagration a great mystery, 
Why did Russia agree to recognize Ukraine's independence in 1991 within borders that contain such large swaths of historically Russian territory? One answer might be that even amid the chaos that attended the fall of the Soviet Union, it would have been inconceivable to most people in the Kremlin that Ukraine might one day achieve real independence from Russia, least of all within borders that seem to guarantee Russia's continued hegemony. A version of Ukraine that included the entire coast of the Black Sea and stretched east of the Dnipro River for 1,000 miles, containing perhaps 20 million Russians, seemed to guarantee, among other things, that pro-Russian parties would win most elections. The strategy, strategy actually worked for a while. But its key assumption, the loyalty of ethnic, ethnic Russians to Mother Russia, was fast eroding. Ukraine's nationalists embraced the dream of joining the European Union and for a country with the GDP per capita of Guatemala, that made Ukrainian nationalization dazzling, even in the heavily Russian cities such as Odessa, Kharkiv, and Mariupol. In 1997, Ukraine and Russia signed a 20-year lease, granting Russia access to Sevastopol. The failure to reach a more lasting agreement was an ominous sign and left a ticking time bomb with a frightfully short delay. Russia's need to secure the north coast of the Black Sea has been one of the central drivers of Russian history, indeed of European history, what an American might call manifest destiny. The Russians have fought half a dozen wars over that territory since the 18th century, including some of the largest and most desperate battles of the Second World War. Any student of Russian history could see that the Russians were going to get that naval base back one way or another. It was increasingly clear that the two countries were on a collision course. Ukrainian nationalists were steadily gaining ground, and by 2004, an overtly anti-Russian candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, was poised to win the presidency in Ukraine. Putin moved to forestall what he must have seen as a looming disaster. He opted for assassination by a disfiguring military-grade poison designed to leave little evidence and, of course, also little doubt that he was responsible. But Yushchenko survived and was soon confirmed as president, whereupon he pledged to join NATO and kick Russia's Black Sea Fleet out of its home base. By now, the Americans, who hate election interference, except when they're the ones committing it, were openly supporting Ukrainian nationalist parties and generally fomenting anti-Russian feelings, culminating in the offer of NATO membership to Ukraine in 2008, a move that, unlike the expansion of NATO to other parts of Europe, had no obvious strategic justification and caused considerable alarm and anger in the Kremlin. By the time the pro-Russian Viktor Yankovych won the 2010 presidential election in Ukraine, even Russian puppets had to ingratiate themselves with the nationalists. Straddling defense, Yanukovych agreed to join the European Union, but then backed out at the last minute, 
in the late 2013 under pressure from Russia. This was the decision that finally plunged Ukraine into the calamity of war and revolution. After police tried to suppress the Euromaiden protests with dozens killed, Yankovich was deposed in an extra-constitutional parliamentary vote. Meanwhile, pro-Russian separatists declared breakaway republics in Luhansk and Donetsk in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, and the country fractured along an ethnic Russian-Ukrainian divide. With Yanukovych deposed and millions of ethnic Russians in the breakaway regions now excluded from the Ukrainian electorate, nothing could stop the nationalists from consolidating power. That meant that the Sevastopol lease would not be renewed when it was set to expire in 2017, a prospect that, justifiably or not, was fully as unacceptable to Russia as the loss of Pearl Harbor would be to Americans. After an all-night session of Russia's secretly, er, after an all-night session of Russia's security cabinet, Putin declared that it was necessary to return Crimea to Russia as soon as possible. Weeks later, Russia engineered a separatist vote in Crimea and annexed the province. In eastern Ukraine, however, Russia pursued a different course. Instead of annexing the Donbass at the same time as Crimea, which, which it easily could have done, Russia insisted on the reintegration of the Donbass into Ukraine under Russian protection. Indeed, this became Russia's key demand in the internationally sponsored Minsk ceasefire agreements of 2014 and 2015. Thus did Russia's responses to the events of 2014 develop along two azimuths with very different objectives, the wrestling of Crimea from Ukraine and the preservation of the Donbass as an electoral foothold in Ukraine. Ukraine's nationalists finally had to face the existential dilemma created by the country's 1991 borders. They could have territorial integrity or political independence, but not both. Full implementation of the Minsk agreement meant choosing the former over the latter. Ukraine's borders would be restored, but so would Russian suzerainty. Like Putin himself, Ukraine's nationalists realized that political control mattered more than territory. Ignoring the pleas of Germany and France and encouraged by America's tacit assurances of support, they preferred to leave the breakaway territories in limbo indefinitely while they consolidated their power in Kiev. Hence, the government of Vladimir Zelensky all but abandoned the Minsk agreements and dared Russia to do something about it. None of this justifies Russia's war of aggression or its systematic violations of international law. But the United States has moved quickly into the role of a de facto belligerent on the basis of assumptions about Putin's motives that are often remarkably undiscerning. One of those assumptions is the idea that if Putin isn't stopped in Ukraine, then other European countries could be next in his sights. 
Putin probably would take back the Baltic states if he could, but he can't. NATO is so powerful that it's on the verge of defeating Russia without deploying a single soldier in combat, simply with economic sanctions and military assistance to Ukraine. Putin surely knows that every inch of NATO territory is hopelessly beyond his reach. Americans have not forgotten the folly of appeasement, but comparing Putin's territorial claims in Ukraine to Adolf Hitler's in Czechoslovakia betrays a deep misunderstanding of both situations. What made Nazi Germany so dangerous in the fall of 1938 was that its strategic position was spring-loaded with overwhelming offensive advantages. Giving in to Hitler's demands at the Munich conference was suicide. For the strategic effect was that Hitler's conquest of Europe could no longer then be prevented. NATO fares no such or NATO faces no such threat today. What makes Russian Russia dangerous now is the desperation of a man sinking in quicksand. His every exertion sinks him deeper still, and he has a loaded gun. Writing in the New York Times recently, President Biden articulated the most coherent statement yet of America's war aims. Make it clear that might does not make right. Send a message to other would-be aggressors and protect the rules-based international order. Beyond those Wilsonian platitudes, however, there was no mention of the substance of the dispute between Russia and Ukraine. No mention, for example, of the Minsk agreements or of the peace proposal floated by Italy recently or of the issues raised in the lengthy phone calls between French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and Putin. It's almost as if the details don't matter, a good indicator of the weight of America's interest in the conflict. America has an abiding interest in protecting the rules-based international order, but has been more than willing to ignore it on compelling occasions, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis and NATO's 1999 dismemberment of Serbia. The example Russia uses to refute the claim that NATO is a purely defensive alliance. Whatever its outcome, the war in Ukraine will not be the end of the rules-based order. People follow rules when they are afraid of the consequences of violating them. And Russians are already suffering the consequences of Putin's war. America also has a vital interest in maintaining NATO's open-door policy and Russia cannot be given any sort of veto over membership in the alliance. But that does not mean that the composition of NATO is none of Russia's business, as American diplomats have asserted. It should be easy to see that Ukraine's accession to NATO would threaten vital Russian interests, particularly when Ukraine is still laying claim to Sevastopol. That makes NATO accession a proper subject for negotiation within the framework of collective security and cooperation that maintained the peace during the Cold War. While he delivers huge amounts of 
military assistance to Ukraine, Biden has repeatedly asserted that Russia must be defeated. Similarly, leaders in the Baltic states, Poland, and other countries with long memories of the Russian boot are bent on inflicting a severe defeat on Putin, hoping to deter, to deter any attack against themselves and perhaps also to exact revenge for a long history of Russian abuses. Elsewhere in Europe, attitudes are more circumspect. Europe gets almost a third of its oil from Russia and 40% of its natural gas for electricity, cooking, and home heating. France and Germany still remember the Grand Alliance in which Russia played a crucial role, and they still remember that it was Russia more than any other power that defeated Napoleon and Hitler. Not surprisingly, Paris and Berlin tried the hardest to prevent the war in Ukraine and are now calling for a negotiated ceasefire. Italy has gone even further, still proposing a ceasefire in place, a Ukrainian pledge not to join NATO, and autonomy for Crimea and the Donbass, presumably under Russian protection. This has triggered the vehement protests from Zelensky's government, which is understandable given America's pledge of apparently open-ended support. Biden has said that he won't put pressure on Ukraine to define its war aims one way or another in public or private. But not making the choice is still a choice, a commitment of massive military aid tied to no precise purpose can only encourage Zelensky to expand his war aims. We're going to go ahead and stop here and take a break, and we'll come back and finish the article and uh, hopefully see what some of the possibilities uh, are in Ukraine and if America can work for some kind of an endgame. So stay with us. We'll be right back. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. The next Catholic Spirit Radio pilgrimage is September 29th through 30th. We'll be going to Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica. We'll tour the Mother Angelica Museum and visit the Rhoda Weiss Miracle House. Rhoda had the stigmata and interceded for the curing of Mother's physical ailment. This bus trip also includes a tour of St. Mother Theodore Guerin Shrine at St. Mary of the Woods, Indiana. Check the Catholic Spirit Radio website for details. Hi, this is Cy Kellett, host of Catholic Answers Live. For me, for me, Catholic Radio is an opportunity to be a little bit of light in a world that is succumbing more and more to darkness, to share that light with people who feel the darkness inside and really want the light and warmth of Jesus Christ. Invite others into this work the Holy Spirit is already doing. Invite them to listen to Catholic Answers Live This is Bob Johnston. You're listening to Being Catholic right here on Catholic Spirit Radio. We're back from our break. We're talking about the war in Ukraine. We talked earlier about some of its religious significance. We're talking now about some of the practical uh, problems and, and uh, situations concerning that war. And uh, we are, we're considering some of the things that it could possibly lead to. 
And the article is asking uh, if we have some kind of an end game uh, in mind uh, in this situation. It doesn't appear that we do. And uh, looking at some of the possible outcomes and some of the reasons that uh, the war got started, and a lot of it has to do, of course, with the fall of the Soviet Union and the uh, changing of borders during the time of the Soviet Union, making some of the independent countries, uh, it, including territory that once was considered historically Russia's and causing a lot of problems uh, between Russia and some of the territories claiming independence after the Soviet Union fell. So we'll go on with that. It says here, despite Kiev's negative reaction, Kissinger's proposal of a return to the status quo ante is actually so favorable to Ukraine that the Russians would be unlikely to consider it unless they were facing complete defeat. There is at least one major thing that Russia will need in addition to the status quo ante before it stops fighting. And that is a land bridge connecting the Donbass with Crimea along the Sea of Azov. Hence, the epic significance of the Battle of Mariupol. Americans admirably want to help Ukraine in the hour of need. But as they commit to supplying as many weapons as Ukraine may require for victory, they need to understand how far Russia is willing to go to secure what it sees as an existential lifeline. Meanwhile, remarkably little attention has been given to how the conflict affects Americans, though the effects are plain enough in the skyrocketing prices of food, gasoline, and electricity. Indeed, the war in Ukraine is causing such economic devastation around the world that poor countries such as Sri Lanka are suddenly on the brink of famine. And I might want to comment here that one of the reasons Sri Lanka is on the brink of famine is because it has pursued a policy of so-called, and I say so-called because I don't really think there is such a thing, so-called green energy. And because of that, it was dependent on a lot of energy from uh, Russia. And once that energy was cut off, it does not have the alternatives to green energy uh, for its own economy. And the so-called green energy that it does have, windmills and solar panels, simply is not enough. And the fact is, is that it isn't ever going to be enough uh, in our country or anywhere else in the world. We're dependent, the modern world is dependent on fossil fuels and green energy is not going to replace those fossil fuels, not now and most likely not in the future. Uh, it just doesn't seem possible that this is the case. So one of the reasons that the Sri Lanka is in trouble is because we, the United States and the Western world, have been pushing it along these green energy lines and uh, giving it uh, a lot of uh, help and so forth because it has reached these high uh, de dependence on green energy and gotten rid of a lot of its uh, fossil fuel energy. And now, of course, it's in trouble because you, <laughs> Russia has cut off the fossil fuel energy and the green energy simply can't replace it. So I did want to make that a little bit clearer. Uh, at any rate, 
the U.S. has an overwhelming interest in the stability of the European system, which will have to be restored sooner or later with Russia in a vital role. The U.S. also has a vital interest in securing Russia's help against the great challenges of our age, Islamist extremism and the rise of China. And I might add here, uh, it may seem partisan on my behalf, but I'll say it anyway, uh, our former president, uh, President Trump, I think recognized this and was signaling in the beginning of his presidency that he wanted to have a greater uh, uh, sort of a, a, a greater uh, uh, relationship with Russia, a better relationship with Russia. And I think he was thinking of it along the lines of defending both the United States and Russia against uh, a lot of the intrusion and dangers of China and uh, some of the uh, Islamic countries. And I think that would have been a good thing for the United States. And, of course, there was a, a rise, a rally all against it. And Trump's presidency got bogged down in what everybody knows is all kinds of collusion accusations and so forth. And that went nowhere. And I think our country is, is uh, worse off for that. At any rate, it says, uh, instead, as the U.S. continues its years-long pattern of inciting Ukraine and antagonizing Russia, the risk of a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, UN, the U.S. and Russia increases. And again, we may be hearing, you know, some of these these PSA announcements and so forth. That it makes me wonder why all of a sudden these are coming along. Like I say, just last week I was talking about the fact that uh, Russia under pressure could feel that it needs to resort to its nuclear arsenal. And maybe that's some of the reasons why this is coming about. Uh, or it could be simply used as an excuse to spend more money uh, on the military industrial complex. There are a lot of people who would be interested, of course, in making a lot of money from selling more weapons and increasing the idea that we have to be uh, have a stronger uh, and stronger defense. So uh, this is a problem that Ukraine is causing as well. It says uh, Russia may or may not be bluffing about its willingness to use nuclear weapons in case of escalation between the two superpowers. So this is a pretty serious statement here from somebody that knows quite a bit about uh, uh, world uh, military uh, advice and policy, the idea that we don't know for sure whether Russia is bluffing or whether Russia is serious about the possibility of using its nuclear power. But that's worth keeping in mind as America continues weapons shipments that easily qualify it as a belligerent actor under the Pentagon uh Pentagon's own law of war manual. In other words, we're doing things that if it was the other side doing, it would come under the Pentagon's law of war manual that uh, we were and are a belligerent. And so we should be stepping very carefully here. Everything is not, uh, I, you know, Putin is not misrepresenting everything. Some of the things that he's making accusations of are real. And that America would have every right to interfere if the situation were reversed. 
So we need to look at it from both sides, from that side as well. What would what would we be willing to do if things were reversed? And according to this article, we would be considering the other person a belligerent. And so Putin has justification for considering us a belligerent. Since 1991, some sort of compromise involving the status and borders of Ukraine has been the only realistic alternative to war. That compromise cannot be fully satisfactory, but it is the only way the conflict will end. So he's saying here, it's something probably that we can't work out to our complete satisfaction, but there has to be some give and take here along these lines, and something has to be worked out uh, about the borders of Ukraine. They may need to be readjusted. Russia may need to be may need to have territory ceded to it. It says, uh, "Let's hope that America's idealism doesn't get too many more people killed." between now and then. So you can see the attitude this man takes uh, at, as to what's going on, that uh, we may be being unrealistic in this idea that Russia may, must be completely defeated and the same idea that somehow or another, if we don't do this, Russia is capable of taking Poland, Lithuania, and the other Baltic states. And according to this man, that's not possible that uh, Russia would not be able to overwhelm the forces of NATO in trying to do that. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any, any indication that Putin is uh, aiming to do any of those things, not under the conditions that he faces right now. There's you know, a hard enough situation that he's facing just in Ukraine itself. It doesn't seem to me likely that there would be any way he could take Poland or Lithuania, especially with us supporting them and especially with them being members of NATO. So the answer seems to be we need to back off and uh, quit setting this policy in cement that Biden seems to be setting in Ukraine. Is there anything uh, more you want to comment on this, Lynn? We're sure walking a tightrope. Tightrope. Yes, we are. And uh, I want to mention some things here uh, that do pertain to our own country and do pertain to, you know, Catholicism and uh, particular and also to Christianity in general concerning why we as a people should have an interest in Ukraine, we as Americans, and why we as Christians and Catholics also should have an interest there. And uh, we're talking about spending $40 billion, you know, we just approved to be sent to Ukraine. We're talking about giving uh, Ukraine more money than Putin's whole military budget is for the coming year. Uh, that seemed, and, and we're doing this when our country is suffering so many problems of its own. Uh, it says here, our leadership class, uh, and I'm referring to both Democrats and Republicans, seems incapable to summon an iota of attention to or funding for the plethora of problems plaguing us at home. Uh, American offshoring to communist Chinese manufacturing leaves us dependent upon them for various essentials. Inflation is now climbing faster than during the Carter years. Gas prices are astronomical. Diesel is in short supply. And we have skyrocketing food, energy, and housing costs. Are we thinking of these things? 
Our nation is $30 trillion in debt with no sign of us being able to pay it off, let alone managing the growing annual interest payments. And there is a, actually a, a theme in Catholicism that warns about a country uh, being in the Old Testament itself, warns about a country being too far in debt, makes it susceptible to its enemies and susceptible to war. Uh, we're talking here about the destruction of American cities. Uh, they're being, you know, hollowed out by racial strife and urban crime is rampant and unchecked. How about spending money and doing things along the lines of bringing us together and solving these problems? Uh, it's not profitable. Well, it can be if, if, if we it's, it's profitable in the sense that it's it uh, you know preserves us as a nation. If our nation falls apart, it's, what are you going to do with your profits? It goes on here. It says corruption infests institutions across the country and at every level. It seems in America now that there are two justice systems, one for the elite and another for the rest of us. You know, how long, you wonder, can this go on? And it goes on, at the same time, we're a witness to the destruction of the American family. And this is something that we as Catholics certainly should be concerned with. Too often, children grow up without fathers. I mean, divorce is rampant. We should be doing something about these things instead of constantly being interested in defending someone else's borders in situations often that are not as one-sided as, as we seem to make it out to be. And then we see the degradation of American education. You know, how many children leave school today unable to read and write? How many kindergartners are being encouraged to change genders? You know, uh, we had Nancy Pelosi standing up and telling the public that uh, this uh, sort of a meeting of drag queens, some kind of a convention of drag queens is what America is all about. I mean, this is ridiculous. Uh, so we have a lot of these things that need to be taken care of, and, and we're not doing it. We need energy independence. We need sound money and economic policies. Uh we need protected borders and sensible immigration policies. Our immigration policy is insane. And uh, we, we need supply chain issues resolved so there aren't shortages. Trade policies that promote domestic manufacturing and support for the American economy. Uh, we need a lot of these foreign adventures and military interventions all over the world that we're doing. We need to end these. Uh, government offices elected and appointed need to be cleaned of filth and corruption. Uh, that's a lot of going on. Jurisprudent fairly applied at all levels to all classes, regardless of political leanings. We need to restore that to America. We need families that are able to survive and thrive on a single income. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, with all the money we have in modern societies, if we spent our money wisely, it would be quite possible to have it so that mothers could stay at home and one person could earn a living. And it could be if some women wanted to work and the men wanted to stay at home, that, that would be a possibility. But the point is, is that if one person could make enough income for the family, someone could be home with the children and our whole country would be so much better off with better families and uh, better kids. Look at all of the... Uh, kids without fathers and kids without supervision that become uh, involved in all of these shootings and 
and uh, drugs and other things that lead to, you know, a group of people who are totally dependent uh, on society and are unable to function for themselves. And then all that could be our future. It's not impossible, but it requires a vision for the country as well as the will and the resources to pursue it. And a lot of our Catholic dogma would be the solution to this. It points right down that line and right down those directions. And we're going to talk about that more in the coming shows about the dogma of the church and, and what the church should pursue. Uh, Orthodox Catholicism, Catholicism is one of the big answers to all of these things that are going on in our country. But we need to start focusing on our own problems at home, and we need to start being far wiser about our foreign adventures. And I hope that this uh, article on Ukraine shows this from a lot of the sides, from both the religious, from the Catholic, and from the cultural, and from the modern, uh, you know, versus traditional, and also from the historical. And I think maybe that's what this uh, article, these articles in this show over the last uh, two or three times has done. And I hope so. At any rate, we're going to have to stop here. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. You've been listening to Being Catholic with Bob Johnston on Catholic Spirit Radio. If you'd like to contact Bob, email bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Again, that's bob at catholicspiritradio.com. Catholic Spirit Radio relies on your support to bring programming like this and EWTN 24 hours a day. Please help keep Catholic Spirit Radio on the air with your generous support. Donate online at catholicspiritradio.com. Or send a donation to Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. That's Catholic Spirit Radio, 108 Boykins Place, Normal, Illinois, 61761. Catholic Spirit Radio is a 501c3, and all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you for your support of Catholic Spirit Radio 